Philippians 2, starting in verse 14, says this, Do all things without grumbling, without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ... I may be proud of that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare for they all seek their own interest not those of Jesus Christ but you know Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have a sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me." This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, John. What's going on, everybody? My name is Tanner. I'm one of the pastors here. Pumped to be with you. Uh, And to get us going today, I want you to think about maybe a meme that you see a lot that has a personal attachment to you. Okay, you're like, I know that thing, you know? Remember the first time... I went to Grandma's house. I love going to Grandma's house. Grandma Lynn, shout out to you if you ever listen to this, Grandma Lynn. I love you. And Grandma Lynn is an artist, okay? Like, her specialty is cartoon figures, and she would write dope birthday cards growing up, and you'd get them, you'd be so excited. One time, I walk in her house, and there's this man on the screen, and it's a dark room behind him, and he's just talking to you like you're his best friend, and he's painting things. And it's a blank canvas that all of a sudden just becomes this masterpiece. I'm like, how did he do that? And the implication was, you could do it too. This man is a meme known as Bob Ross. He's got an orange afro. Y'all probably seen him. And the thing is, the man's a genius. I mean, he's dead now, but he, he was a businessman. Clearly, he started something. He had his own channel 24-7, just painting and talking to you. Let's put some respect on his name. I'm just saying. Okay? But it got me thinking, you know, an artist like Bob Ross, what he was doing in that moment is he wanted you to pick up the brush with him, right? He's like, I'm painting, I'm painting a picture, and you can do it too. And what we're going to jump into in today's text is Paul is finishing an argument that he's been making for about 35 verses or so that we've been walking through sermon by sermon. And he finishes the argument by giving us two men, Epaphroditus and Timothy, and says, 
Look at these guys. They're kind of pictures of the picture I've been painting. They're a picture of the picture, right? And by, by painting this picture, he's kind of saying, pick up the brush. Philippian church, look at these men. Philippian church, be these men. And my prayer for us, and the, the title of the sermon is Pour Yourself Out. That is, that is the, the picture of the church that Paul has been presenting all this time. And my prayer is that we will walk out of here with clarity of what that means. And also, we just want to be that collective brush together. Amen? All right, so to get there, in this passage, we're going to look at the culture of self and then the counterintuitive way forward. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. Okay, so the culture of others, and I just alluded to it, but this argument he's been building has been going on for a while. This, this letter, in a lot of ways, is the letter of service. He's been talking about self-sacrifice and be like Jesus, and he laid his life down on the cross, and he humbled himself, and you know, this long argument he's been building, uh, and, and we've been talking about that extensively. And then he gives us these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And what I want to do is really focus on there are two elements in these men that I think Paul is saying, this is it, you know? They're, they're a picture of what I think you can become, Philippian church. So I want you to look at verse 20 with me. I think it really captures what makes Timothy special in a lot of ways. I'll read 19 and 20. He said, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Let's think about that statement for a second. I got nobody who will be genuine like this man. Even, even like out of all the Christians I know, right? He's not saying like all those evil people out there. He's saying I got no other co-laborers who are like Timothy. And this man is authentic. And even this word concern, somebody say concern. In case you haven't checked your Greek this morning, okay? That word is merimnao, okay? It is the same word that in two chapters we're going to do a sermon on not being anxious. Maybe you've heard that the Bible teaches don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Same word, okay? So what our translation, if you're reading ESV, has done is kind of implied that they're different, but it's the same word, okay? And I, wanna, I want us to think a little bit, why is he being praised for merimnao? And then in two chapters... Paul is going to say, don't be merimnao about anything, right? And you probably noticed later in this text, it says, he's going to do that, Epaphroditus is, so I'm less anxious. Did y'all catch that? He says, my sorrow's on the line if these guys don't come back with good reports. And so there's a, 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 a play going on here where he's praising something that later he'll say, don't do. So we just got to think, think, why is that praiseworthy? We all, I think the word concern is a good one. Uh, it's, it really comes down to, Concern is born out of love, and what Paul's going to say, don't do, anxiety is born out of fear. Y'all, concern is genuine because it has the good of the other in mind, and it's born out of love. Love of neighbor leads to concern about neighbor. Love doesn't make you detach from people, right? That would not be good. He's not saying don't, in Philippians 4, he's not saying don't be concerned about anything, you know, don't be concerned about anybody. He's saying, don't be anxious. And we're going to have that sermon is coming, so I'm not going to go over the top on that right now. But he's saying, don't let the, the engine of that car be fear. You know, a parent who's going out in the street with their kids can walk out there in a spirit of love with their kids, hanging out, present to a neighbor, and a car's coming by. Hold on, uh, kids, 
let the car through, back up, what I say, back up. I've never done that. I'm just saying that's hypothetically what it would be. But a parent can also step out in the street of just, just in a posture of gripped by everything that could go wrong. Pine cone, pine cone, what that? You know, just, it's a spirit over a car. So just on the surface, we can't necessarily always tell uh, if it's concern or anxiety. But I just want to be clear that's what the Bible is saying, is that concern is good. Timothy is to be praised for his genuine concern for their welfare, right? And we just got to own that, that this idea of like being genuine. Isn't that like the greatest compliment you can get, that you're genuine? What somebody means by that is you're authentic. You are what you see is what you get. There ain't a what you don't see that's different from what you're getting. They're the same. So with Timothy, if he seems genuinely concerned about your welfare, guess what? He is, right? Hypocrisy. The church. The church. Big. So all over the Bible, when God's talking about love and and God is love. It's, it's a genuine love, as Romans 12, 9 tells us. And y'all, every time I start to get frustrated by somebody else's... Marriage love going, you know? Is that all genuine, you know? I want everything... like genuine at all times none of us right but on the flip side for him to say this about a man like timothy means that it is possible to be called genuine so we can't so take that to mean it's impossible y'all if it wasn't possible to be genuine i'm gonna be honest with you i'd give up you know like if our hope in christ only was for the next life i think that's a pitiable circumstance and that is not the good news of the gospel it's not just that we will live with christ one day we live with him now believer and so part of what he's doing is he is forming you as we talked about last week through his energy his work in you he's making you genuine and you can become genuine your love for your spouse if it doesn't feel genuine it is a lie from the enemy that you can't become genuine in your parenting in your workspace wherever it is your love can be genuine and it's going to be a struggle like lord you see the real me. You know where I'm faking. I might have them fooled. I ain't got you fooled, you know. And let's do the work. Let me repent. Let me fight. Let me struggle. But by God's grace, love can be genuine. I mean, you look at Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, kind of the emotional language. He's like, hey, Epaphroditus is longing to come see you. I'm hoping to send them so I get good news about y'all. He's sitting in prison, and he's like, man, I need some good news from y'all. Like, that's what my hope's in. Paul's not like, I hope, hope to hear from you guys. Write me soon, later. He's like, I need a word from y'all. I'm going to be like, I mean, Paul's saying my emotional well-being is based on getting news about y'all. Timothy's emotional well-being is based on his interaction with you. Epaphroditus, he heard that y'all heard that he was sick, which he was. He almost died, and he's so worried about it that he wants to come see you so y'all will stop stressing. So their emotional well-being is on the line, Right? The best example I could think of is a healthy concern of a parent for a kid. 
again, not from fear of all that can go wrong, but any parent, I mean, you're cons- like you want your kid to become a, a mature adult, you know, and you want them to grow, you want them to be stable, you want them to grow in holiness, to love Jesus, all these things. It's good to be concerned about that. I would question a parent who's like, I can't control it and not my problem. Like there's some good, <laughs> there's some good detachment, which is I'm not them. I, you know, some parents, I think we could go too far. Of, you are not identified with your kid's actions. Amen, somebody. Um, but uh, concern is good. And I think, I think that's what he's saying about Timothy. I ain't got nobody like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So that is a culture of others has that kind of concern. So y'all, how is our concern economy in here today? Is the energy of your concern all about your world? Is, your, your, is there fear around your world crumbling? Is there, is there concern about how to advance your world, your kingdom? Or, like Timothy, are you concerned for the welfare of others in this room? In your workplace, on your street, on your team? It'd be a healthy self-examination, just what am I concerned about? The culture of others also, though, what we see in Epaphroditus, it's risky. Somebody say risky. In verse 30, it says, talking about Epaphroditus, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So I want to I explain what that means. So back to what we talked about and we'll talk about it at the end, but Paul and the Philippians are in a relationship, okay, like a financial and also relational just partnership, okay? So these are miles apart, Philippi, and probably Rome where, where Paul is in prison. And so the Philippians needed to give Paul a gift, but somebody got to do it, got to make the journey, got to go, got to take, put their neck on the line to make it happen, carrying money. There's some danger, you know, it ain't like, let me Venmo you real quick, send it to Paul. So Epaphroditus did it in a moment where it was high stakes for him, and he was sick nearly to the point of death and didn't allow that sickness to keep him from fulfilling, completing that gift to Paul. Does that make sense? That's a risk. The, the Bible in these verses uses the word send four times. I long to send Timothy. I long to send Epaphroditus. I sent Epaphroditus. I hope to come to you. It's just filled with language of like, our love will take action at cost to ourselves. I'm not asking you to come to me. We coming to you coming for you because we love you. In some sense, Epaphroditus almost lost his life so the Philippians could find it. That sounds like somebody else, doesn't it? Who didn't almost lose their life. Y'all, part of what risk does is it drains kind of this return on investment mentality from us. You know what I'm saying? What, what a culture of others does is it pulls out what's in it for me. You know? It's that mindset that if these steps don't count on my watch, I'm not stepping Y'all know what I'm talking about? I mean, this is just in us, y'all. What steps don't even count if my watch don't tell me. I remember I had, and just so you know, I'm not hating on you. I've had the watches, and I've gone through the phases of, what, what is the point of today if the battery's dead on this thing? Can I just skip a day? I had a streak going, you know? I want the return on my steps. It's the mindset at work that's like, I don't get paid for that, you know? I'm doing a job, you know? It's the mindset that is, what's in it for me? And y'all, but you almost sense Paul saying with Epaphroditus in particular, he doesn't say y'all need to honor Timothy. He says y'all need to honor Epaphroditus. Did y'all catch that? He says, yo, this guy almost died for y'all. Honor him. It's kind of like they're overlooking him. 
in a culture of others, we, we, we are not overlooking. We're honoring. But in a culture of self, you just miss people, don't you? You just miss them. Look past them. Overlook them. If they don't appreciate it on things they do at great cost to themselves, you know? It's kind of like in a culture of others, the individual can be, you know, I can give myself up for others. But in a culture of self, I'm going to give you up for me. You see how that works? So these men are, are modeling like, y'all matter more. I'll take the hit so y'all can go high. And that's what we've been talking about for, for a whole chapter. That's what Jesus models most of all. So y'all, this is possible for the church. This is. Some of it, you know, we'll never fully get there until we're in glory. But y'all, Paul is saying, he's been saying for a chapter and a half, pour it out. He used this language of, if I'm to be poured out, as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. And you'll be like, what does that mean? I'll tell you. What it means is, uh, in the kind of Old Testament sacrifice system, you got an offering happening on the altar, and then they would pour a drink offering. It's like, it's a, it's a way of saying this looks wasteful, but it is valuable because it's to you, Lord. Paul's saying, make me the drink. You know, the animal makes sense. Like, it's being sacrificed. It serves a function, but the drink, but it's like, God, you're just worthy. You're worthy. Paul's saying, if I get poured out with no ROI, we good. And that's the kind of church he envisions them being, of just dumping themselves out for the good of others. But we don't only see the culture of others in this text. We see the culture of self. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me one more time. Do all things. Somebody say all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain y'all two things I want to talk about with the culture of self okay first one is it grumbles and disputes that's what it says and we talked about this last week. Anytime there's a don't in the Bible, you need to think what do is behind that don't. What yes is behind that no. So when you're told don't do anything in grumbling and disputing, you're being invited to do everything with a joyful heart, right? Like just be happy about pouring yourself out. Do it. All y'all. And this is the thing with the painting illustration. It's kind of like we're, we're one brush painting one picture as a church, you know? Like pour yourself out together. That's, that's the image. And be happy about it. Be hype. But... Sometimes you get do-nots to focus on, like if you're told don't step outside of your marriage, that's, you're being invited to enjoy your marriage, like have fun, go crazy, <laughs> um, but don't step outside of it, amen somebody, okay, so he's saying don't grumble, don't dispute, why that one? For those of y'all that have read your Old Testament, this word grumble gets used by the Israelites a lot, they were the grumblers, they grumbled and grumbled and grumbled. Okay, the word for grumble is gungismon. It's like gungismon. Even saying the word, you sound like you whining, you know? Gungismon. Uh-oh. And, y'all, this is sensitive just to talk about as a pastor, if I'm honest. Like, I'm talking about it because the Bible's talking about it, okay? I do not think our people are grumblers. Like, I think by God's grace, our leadership, we would all say, we're doing great. Praise the Lord. Y'all are easy to lead. But this is something that grips, that grumbling can grab you. Does that make sense? It's not like you, you... I'm on the grumbling path. It just, it can, it can just get you. Does that make sense? And it can get in a whole community quickly. So I'm not talking about this because I want to. I am because the Bible is. And because it's something that the people of God have struggled with forever. Okay? So don't 
grumble. Don't grumble. Grumbling is something you do with your lips, right? It's a, it's a posture of complaint. It's airing it out, right? But the Bible teaches us, you know this, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what you murmur is another word, grumble, murmur, murmur, murmur. What you're grumbling about starts in your heart. And so a community that is a grumbling community probably was a discontent community underneath the surface before that. Does that make sense? The Israelites, the word that got used a lot, they were cravers. They're craving. I mean, these jokers come out of Egypt, sea was split for them, all the stuff, and within about one chapter, they're like, where's the food at? <laughs> and we got to be honest, what, at, at a real basic level, they're saying there's no food and no water. So is that statement, the grumble, is God like unfair? That seems unfair, God. They're just asking where the water is, right? I think he knows something we all know. I think he knows their heart. I think at the heart of it, y'all, what grumbling is doing is it's airing out displeasure with God and his people instead of warring it out over that displeasure. Because I want to I be really clear, okay? Acts 6, a lot of y'all know this. It, the Bible says that a complaint came up Respond. Yeah, very valid. Move different, think different, look different, smell different, military. have conflict and we're going to learn how to do it well by God's grace okay so I don't want you to hear the Bible silencing like legitimate things but it is saying don't grumble don't grumble don't Take a, a, a struggle in your heart and just immediately air it out. So I've been trying to think, what do instead? This is something we talk about in the membership interview. Like if you step into membership here at Port City, we're going to talk to you about how to do conflict well. Because the goal is not a purified church that has no conflict. We've got to learn how to do it. Because we live in an era where people are either going to blast you or they're going to ghost you. Let me get on the Facebook. Hate that church. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Or they're just going to never respond again, and they're gone. Bye. Said something I don't like. Bye. <laughs> Tired of you. Um, so let's just not do those two. Let's start there. Let's not air it out. Let's not ghost it out, okay? Let's not, and those are both different forms of grumbling, are they not? Grumbling fingers or grumbling lips are kind of the same thing. I think there's a way to, to really fight in your prayer closet with the Lord. Bring it to him. Lord, is this legitimate? Is this just a preference? that can be laid down, war, go to war on that. We all got preferences, I promise you, okay? And then here's what gets interesting about grumbling, because it is kind of a public thing. You're usually going to, and again, I'm not even saying what I'm saying is grumbling, but you're gonna bring something to somebody else, I'm frustrated about blank, okay? I'm not the Lord God Almighty to tell you if that is grumbling or not, okay? I can't tell you your heart, your heart I don't know. So I'm thinking, what do you do if you're the person getting grumbled too, maybe? What do you do? Do we need to be grumble police? Grumbler! <laughs> 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 
Grumbler. <laughs> get him. Uh, get the grumbler. Um, don't do that. Um, you know, Galatians 6, I was reminded of this yesterday, um, talks about, this is what it says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And I think this is a unique one that is tempting to grab you. Grumbling can grab a community. It can. You know, and what, what some scholars point out in this text is sometimes grumbling is directed at the leadership. That is kind of how it goes. Who did they complain about God to? Moses. They complained about Moses to God and God to Moses, right? And so some people were pointing out, you remember back in chapter 1, verse 1, this is the only letter where the leaders get mentioned in the intro. You get the sense Paul is trying to put respect on Epaphroditus' name and say, y'all got a problem honoring like your leaders is part of what one of the theories is, which kind of makes some sense to me. So I'm just saying that part of what we've got to do is do what the Bible says, which is people are going to be messy, people are going to sin, and in a spirit of gentleness, help them discern like, hey, let me explore that with you. Let's get up and pray over that thing. Or like pushing like, hey, I think we good. It's okay. I feel you, but we good. You know, finding ways to say that in a really helpful way. And just, it's just hard, y'all. Community's hard and it's messy. But in a spirit of grace, I think we can um, hopefully never have grumbling. But if it pops up, by God's grace, stumble through trying to help, help a brother or sister in that. Amen, somebody? Okay, here's the next question I had in my head. Why is grumbling tied to disputing? Think about that. If I'm grumbling, why are we, why, disputing kind of gives you this image, right? Grumbling is like, I'm, I'm, I'm annoyed, and then disputing is this. And this is what I was thinking about. I want to take you back. I held back on one thing about the culture of others I want you to see real quick. In verse 220, Paul says, I have no one like him about Timothy. Other translations, they'll say, I have no one like sold literally what it's saying is one sold. Me and Timothy, one soul. Him going is like me going. And what, what that kind of puts out there is like the church, think back, go with me to chapter 2, verse 2. Check this out. Paul said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Y'all, I think what's being pointed out here is we are to be one soul. One thing we're aiming for. God's glory by laying our lives down for one another and for the people around us. We, see, this is the image we get when we go Bob Ross mode. We think we all Bob Ross. And in some ways, God is painting a picture through your life, and that is good. Okay, like I'm writing a story. God is writing a story in me. Amen and amen. But he's writing one story at Port City. Does that make sense? A lot of people, a lot of parts. So we ain't all doing work. work Think about it like this. We're not Bob Ross. We're the brush. Does that make sense? Or we're the picture in, in the spirit. It's not a ton of Bob Rosses. It's maybe God's Bob Ross. I don't know. Maybe, maybe God's the brush. Maybe we're just the paint. I don't know. But you get the point I'm trying to make. One soul. One. One. Why I think disputing comes in is when you got many minds, you got disputes. Does that make sense? When you have many minds, you have many problems. So, Poor City, I think what chapter 2 as a whole is doing and we're being shown in a real tangible way through these two men is one mind, one goal, one thing you want, 
God's glory, and you go after it by pouring yourselves out. And you're going to lay down a ton of preferences along the way in little things and big things. And sometimes some of those need to bubble up and go to, go to leadership, and let's talk about it. We need to adjust and become one mind, taking that into account. But with one mind, everybody's laying down preferences. With many minds, everybody's leveraging their preferences. Does that make sense? Because now, like, my mind is what I'm after. I'm here with y'all next to you, but my mind is driving. Does that make sense? Not our one mind to pour out, but my one mind to build what I want for me. And that's where the, the conflict starts to come in. Last thing I'll say about the culture of self. It said, you might have checked it out that it says that when we live this way without grumbling and disputing, when we're living out chapter two, we become a, 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 you know, a light in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, crooked and twisted society. Well, crooked kind of gets at this idea of like, it's, it's not that the thing is like um, broken necessarily, it's distorted. Somebody say distorted. Distorted gets at the idea that it's just not being rightly used. Like, it's the right thing, right, you know, but it's just, I had the image of, like, using a book to mop up the floor. Still a book, just using it for the wrong thing. And talking about the society around us who is lost, yes, they, sin is, like, evil and it's wicked and it, it, it's a direct rebellion against God, but it is also just distortion. It's using books to mop. And that's what a lot of the people in our surrounding communities who are lost are doing. They're not, they're just, they're just distorted. You know what I mean? They need to get in the, the church is the ones who have been realigned with books get read, mops mop. You know what I mean? Like we're just being used by somebody else in the way we were designed to be and now our joy is higher from it. So the culture of self, it's just getting twisted in on itself. You know, like this series, we've called it to live is Christ. But when you put something else in there, when is to live is money, when is to live is happy, to live is, is even good things like family, good things, like anything else is a distortion of reality. To live is Christ. That's reality. And when we get off as a community, we are distorted. We're the book mopping up the floor, you know? And it's like, you're going to get wet. It's going to be hard to read that page. Damage will be done. <laughs> We're going to have to rebind that thing. Uh, amen to the teachers. Always rebinding books. Okay, so thinking about all of this, I want to talk to you about the counter-instinctual way forward. I want to talk to you about what's, how do we become the one and not the other. And this is it's count, it's counterintuitive. This is not how we naturally think. Here's how I want to invite you to think about this, okay? What actually is Paul telling them to do? He told them don't grumble. He says hold firm to the word of life. Amen. We're going to talk about that more and more throughout this series. We'll talk about it a little bit here in a couple minutes. But if you really break down the report on Timothy and Epaphroditus, they are told, look at verses 28 through 30 with me. They are told, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You know what they need to do? They need to receive Epaphroditus. He didn't tell them, be Epaphroditus. He didn't tell them, be Timothy. He said, receive Epaphroditus. Does he want them to be them? Absolutely. That's what this whole chapter has been about. But what's counterintuitive about the Christian faith is the path to being is receiving. 
It is not, I will pour my life out, you know. It is, it is a receiving of Epaphroditus that will make you genuine like Timothy. It, it, we are called to receive him before we are him. And y'all, in a lot of ways, we've already talked about it, there is a truer and greater Epaphroditus we need to receive. Jesus is the truer and greater Epaphroditus. There are four ways I think they're similar but different, where Jesus is like a next-level Epaphroditus, okay? Check this out. Four ways. So first off, the obvious one is Epaphroditus risked his life to complete what was lacking in their service to Paul, right? Okay, so Jesus didn't risk his life to complete any service. He gave his life to complete service. And I want you to think about that. To complete the service you were lacking to me is what Paul said. Family, we were lacking in service to God. We were. We were lacking in just what it means to be human. We were the book down on the ground. Like, if you are the mop being used to cook, you know, think about all the floors you didn't sweep in your life, you know, and all the floors you didn't clean up. There's a sense in which we've wasted it. Does that make sense? We've wasted our lives in rebellion. We've wasted it in ignorance. We've wasted it in a lot of ways. And the, what, what the gospel is, is the opportunity to receive the one who restores you back to your right undistorted way. The mop being used the right way. And it didn't come, Jesus didn't kind of risk his life. He went all the way and spilled it all out. He laid it all down to complete what we didn't do. That was the nature of his mission was to finish what we lacked. There's been no human who lived the right life. There's been no human who said, God, I want you. I want to pour out. I don't live for me. I live for you. I'm one-minded with you, God. We are one soul, right? We are one, one and three, three and one, and I'm here to live for you and fully did it. And his mission was to complete what was lacking in those who are not one-souled with God. And at the end of his life, in his death, burial, and resurrection, what he's doing is he is offering us to be the ones that God sees as those who did all the right stuff. Now, when God looks at you, he doesn't see somebody lacking potential or who blew it. He sees the perfect, spotless righteousness that his son rightly filled. When Paul looks at Philippian, the Philippi church, he doesn't see how they blew it. He sees how Epaphroditus made it happen, baby. And I'm going to treat y'all how Epaphroditus' service brought y'all to with me. I'm not going to be like, y'all kind of love me. And if it wasn't for, for you don't get a threatening, annoyed sense, do you, from Paul? You get a, y'all are my people. But for Epaphroditus, you wouldn't be. But he doesn't like every other verse. I praise the Lord for you because Epaphroditus helped y'all when y'all would have blown it. He's like, he is fully in right relationship with them. And he's going to talk later in chapter 4 about it wasn't even about the money. You know what I mean? He's going to talk. We're going to talk money. And he's going to say it ain't even about the money. It's about y'all. Right? But we've got to see that when God looks at us, he treats us if you are in Christ as if we did it. But we didn't do it. He did it. That's the gospel. You don't get treated how you deserve to be treated. You get treated like you did it like you lived it, like you've been about it, and you haven't been. And so many of us, we live like we, we didn't do it, and oh, I'm ashamed he had to do it. No, 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 no. The gospel is complete surrender and abandonment to the one who paid it all on your behalf and then offers it to you as a gift. And now you are one sold with God, so be one sold with God. 
Live life with him because he brought you in. Let's do it. Second way, like Epaphroditus, Jesus' service is complete and not contingent. He did it before they recognized his greatness for having to do it. Paul's having to point out honor this man. He already did something for y'all. Can't you see that? You know? <laughs> but this is the thing. Epaphroditus didn't when he recognized. You know, he already did it. Now I'm coming back for your sake. Right? Now I'm a, I'm a be. That's God. God hasn't on the hundred and says, "Take gift, man. Take it. Honor this man." Third, like Epaphroditus, Jesus came and he's coming back. Y'all see that? He came, and I hope to send him again. Y'all, in, in the gospel, we understand that we live between the two comings, right? He came and completed the service, and he's coming, coming back. And the call in between is honor this man. Receive him. Every day between now and then, receive him. Receive him. His coming back is sure. He is coming back. Number four, like Epaphroditus, Jesus isn't demanding that you receive him. I want you to see that. Epaphroditus ain't write this letter. Who wrote it? Paul. And it's such a picture of like the Trinitarian, like what the Bible is doing is wooing you to recognize his greatness that you've overlooked, but it's not demanding that you see it and taking your face and rubbing it in urine like a dog or something. Y'all done that when a dog pees on the ground? Look at it, like, look what you did. That's how you train them, right? Look what you did. Don't do it again. Um, but y'all, this is the amazing, another amazing aspect of the good news of the gospel is that Christ did it and he ain't. He ain't just in your dream. <laughs> He's not. Like, hmm. He is wooing you with his kindness. The Bible teaches that it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. It's not threats. It's can't you see what you lacked? It's an invitation to receive. And as you accept that invitation to receive Jesus once salvifically and then every day for the believer, just keep receiving him. What you're doing is you've got to look in, the, look in the face what your service lacks. You've got to see what you didn't do that you should be doing. You've got to see it. You've got you to go through that process and let his kindness melt you. It says, receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy. Y'all, the call on us is to receive the Lord Jesus in the Lord with all joy. And to receive him is to let him all the way in. The word receive means to take into your inner being. Y'all, the reason, the, the transformation happens in concordance with the reception. Does that make sense? When we're not extending Timothy, we've got to beg the question, have we received Epaphroditus? Does that make sense? There's a link between their lack of receiving and their lack of extending. And in our, what we think is, I just got to extend harder. What makes it counter-instinctual is you become more like Christ when you receive the Christ. You have to let him in. There's a woman in 1577, she wrote a book, uh, and it, she just used this image of interior castle. And she had this mindset that like, it's almost like your soul, it's like levels to it, you know? And like, not in a, uh, she wasn't talking about earning, but like your functional walk with God is the means by which you let him deeper. Let him in further, receive him deeper, receive him farther. And so much of what we struggle with is we're just not, opening new doors and letting them in and, and, and just there's another room and keep coming keep coming 
find me, find me. You've got to see and remember that he wants all the way into your inner being. He wants you to receive him. And what's fueling that is before you ever receive him, he's already received you. That is the good news. And family, when we receive him, we will extend him. We will. It just will happen. When you take in that kind of love that is free, deep into your inner being, you will extend it radically. You will be Bob Ross. We will be the brush. We will paint a magnificent picture. And as we walk out of here, the the call that he put on this church before he changes arguments next week with an amazing passage in Philippians 3 is he says, receive Epaphroditus. Church, let us receive the Lord Jesus with all joy and pour ourselves out in response. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. Um, God, thank you that you're so kind and that you call us to receive you. What a kind command. Receive me. Receive the one who has done it all. Receive the one who wants all the way in. Receive my love. Receive my son. Lord, would we do that? Um, And God, even, I mean, as admirable as our, our attendance is, that's not receiving you. Even in our singing, we cannot be receiving you. In our reading of the Bible, we cannot be receiving you. We're so good, God, at keeping you at arm's length. So good at it, Father. So I just pray that this week you would melt us a little more. You would just split us open. Help us just to fall uh, at, at your feet in our unworthiness, but in your willingness to go the distance for us. And not to demand that we recognize it, but you just keep inviting us to see reality. And then, Lord, would this church be ones, would we be ones who pour ourselves out, Lord, with one mind, God, one mind, for your glory, um, not for our kingdom being built. Help us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.